Sound Design. I treat everything like I'm on tour, even when I'm not on tour. Doing the same things in the same order every time. Sound Design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the home of the world's best online training and sound system tuning that you could do at your own pace from anywhere in the world. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by front of house engineer, system tech, and technical editor for Live Sound International, Michael Lawrence. Michael, thanks for joining me on Sound Design Live. Hey, Nathan. Thanks for having me, man. This is fun. I sound a little hesitant. I should be more confident. It was extremely hesitant because I can't (laughs) really say that it's fun yet. Because we haven't quite started. I, let me say that I hope that it's fun. Is That's that funny better? that you thought I was talking about you. I was talking about me. I felt like I said, welcome? Am, am I welcoming you? Okay. Well, you, I mean, you know, you know the name of your show, I, I assume, right? So that shouldn't be hesitant. So, Michael, I definitely want to talk to you about um, mixing monitors from front of the house. I'm going to ask you about your Dante certification. And maybe we'll get into some system engineering and, and um, system tuning stuff. But before all of that... What is the number one most played song on your phone right now? The number one most played song on my phone right now is, I, I'm not positive I'm pronouncing her name right, poor girl, but I think it's Emily Sande. It's called Next to Me. You won't find drinking on the table. It's this really cool pop tune with these great drums. and I heard it in a Denny's and I became obsessed with it, so that's, that's my latest infatuation. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I haven't been to a Denny's in so long. You didn't bring back memories. Do they? Have, I, don't, I don't know if they have Denny's up here. Is that that's a, crazy? I don't even believe that. <laughs> yeah, Dude, I, I think uh, I think maybe they don't have Denny's up here, but I shouldn't I shouldn't commit to that. I haven't been here that long. They don't have I. Uh, I don't think they have IHOP. They don't have Waffle House. Was, so you guys just hate breakfast, basically. Yeah, that's right. We hate breakfast. <laughs> I'm never coming out there, man. I'm not coming to see you. There's a lot of burger places, it. a lot of beer. All right, so Michael, um, how did you get your first job in audio? About 14, I think. And uh, I was in whatever grade you're in when you're in seventh grade, I think, maybe. Um, and uh, my cousin was at at school he was a couple years older than me and and uh he was supposed to run the lights for the talent show and i think he figured out like at the last minute that it wasn't cool to do that and so he sort of was like well you can do it michael and i was like this is great because i was too young to realize it wasn't cool um so i did that and uh i quickly became more interested in in audio than lighting and I also, you know, I did, uh, I spent a lot of time harassing the people that ran the auditorium in my high school and just asked them a bunch of questions. And what I realized is that those people were very good at, at, at lighting and very good at rigging and very good at all of the other theatrical disciplines. And they were, for some reason, not very good at audio. And I was the nerd who could come up and apparently get it to do stuff. And so I sort of fell into it because no one else was doing it right. Uh-huh. And um, I still work with those guys. You know, it's been, it's been decades and i still i still hang with those really? guys i still run audio That's with those amazing. guys yeah 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 so i mean it's, i i teased i teased the guy because the tech director there is the same age that i am now when i started working with him and now he's an old guy so That's hilarious. yeah That's so awesome. i was like remember how old you are yeah but uh so yeah i just i just kind of they they someone left me unattended with with audio gear and and yeah. i got i got hooked man well so what that was your first responsibility what was your first job that you actually got paid for those guys that ran that the 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 high school auditorium, they would, you know, they would do some local events over the summer. So I was probably 16 at that point, And they, you know, would just have me come out and, you know, I was just an extra hand. I would help run cables or I would help. Um, actually, you know, I take that back. Uh, this is actually a fantastic story. I was 15 years old and a buddy of mine was a choir director and his, his choir, his kid's choir was going to have a concert out on the, on the lawn at city hall in our, in our town. And his sound guy backed out like, hours before the gig so he called me and he said yeah i know you're not a sound guy but i know you can probably help me come figure it out and you know you, you do this stuff and uh, i guess i had a reputation for being a nerd <laughs> and so i called my buddy you know my best friend my sam and i'm like sam we got to do this gig man and you know there's no snake so we're, we're huddled on the side of the the, co- the choir risers with a little behringer like four channel you know we got four little mics and uh long story short one of the girls in the choir threw up all over the 
stage Whoa. Uh, and all over all of our mics and it was totally amplified really loud and that and that <laughs> what, <laughs> that was, was my sick? first real audio game. did it have anything yeah, to do with yeah, you she, i think she was just nervous i don't know maybe maybe i was wow, maybe she, she had to look at me while mic. she was sick. I yeah i have yeah, no she, idea was, how you get vomit out of a mic <laughs> it was it was an ordeal man and so after you know it was sort of like in the in the four seconds of silence before the song the song ends but before people clap you know there's that sort of weird little window there uh-huh. um that was when she threw up wow. and uh so it was what did super you do loud. you were you were surprised i'm sure you froze <laughs> we for were, a second sam and i were and did both you sitting turn there all the mics off or <laughs> well sam says and kill all mics he oh, said wow. that happened. so so we did and that was my first paid gig i think i made 50 bucks doing that <laughs> Michael, I know lots of things have happened in your career since then. Less vomit, thankfully. <laughs> no. Oh, man. What if you're like, yep. And then every gig since then, someone has vomited. And Brings somehow me back, the common denominator is me. <laughs> you got you to gotta keep to your roots. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> okay. So all this stuff has happened. I'm wondering if you could maybe pick out one decision you made that was really kind of a turning point where it was like okay, um, this is going to be a career now. I don't think there was like one moment when I said, all right, this is it. I'm deciding. I'm planting my flag in audio. But it, it very quickly became a part of my life and it very quickly became something that um, I liked to learn more about and also realized that around here there were not a lot of people that were doing it well. Um, and so it was like, hey, I can actually do this and... I can make money doing this because people are willing to pay to have this work. You know what I mean? There's always that that crazy moment when you go, wow, this is not only something that I find really interesting and cool and fun, but people are willing to pay me to do this. <laughs> Why? You know what I mean? So, so it, I mean, I would say it was probably over, you know, a, a summer or two when I was in high school that I was like, no, this can actually, you can do this. And they didn't mention this at career day, but, but hey, I like it and people are willing to pay me to do it. So, you know, it, it pretty quickly just became a part of my life. Um, I'll never forget Buford Jones saying that he thinks one of the most important things he did or does, I guess, when he works on shows is that immediately after the show is over, he goes back to the dressing room to say something to the artist about something that he liked about the show, kind of in their language, like about the music. Well, I, I mean, I would say something very similar. I try to do it as soon as possible in the day. I do a lot of one-offs, a lot of college stuff around here. And so, you know, a lot of these times, they're not artists that I've been working with for a long time. Um, and so they don't know who I am and I don't know who they are and we've got to work together. And, and um, it's very easy for musicians to be like, well, who the hell is this guy? You know, and, and, and so, you know, I, I can I can honestly say, hey, that's a really interesting pedal board you have there. Or, oh, that's a really that's a cool guitar. Yeah, I kind of, you know, I had a, a 67 couple years. Like, that immediately puts them on a more comfortable uh, place where, you know, they're, the musicians love to talk about their gear. Are you kidding me? They're no different than asking us about our consoles. You know, we love to talk about that all day. So um, I, I try to make a comment about their gear, uh, that something that, that they're doing that's interesting or if they have a really interesting tone or they got a really, really old beat-up amp that sounds great. I'll try to mention that as soon, soon on in the process mm-hmm. as I can. So later on when I say... Hey, you know, I'm really getting a lot of guitar off the stage. You think we could reangle your amp a little bit? I th- I've found that they're going to be more receptive to that if they feel that you really do understand what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. There's um, there's some sort of balance where a lot of people probably come in expecting you to be the person that's going to try to say no to them a lot and try to stop them from doing things like, we want to be loud. We want to do X, Y, and Z. We want to, you know, put microphones in weird positions or whatever. And the quicker you can sort of turn that around and make you the enabler of them getting what they want and um, having a good time, the better. And that sounds like a good way to start. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times, a lot of times things just are the way they are. Uh, but a lot of times I try to just give them the context for what I'm trying to say. And it's it's their show. They're the artist. You know, my name's not on the ticket. So, you know, I'll say something like, hey, I'm getting a lot of guitar off the stage. It will be more even out here if we can turn your amp. I'm not saying we have to turn your amp. I'm just letting you know why I want to do it and how it's going to make them sound better. Yeah. And it's up to them. Uh, you know, a, a lot of rooms I say, look, I mix in this room all the time. What I found is the lower the stage volume is, the better you sound out front. And I'll just give them that information. And, and an intelligent musician will know what to do with that information. 
a.m. So let's talk some more about this. You work on a lot of college gigs with a lot of uh, probably, you know, small, medium shows with artists that you are, have never worked with before. And it may be the one time that you work with them. Um, you have this article on your site called Running Monitors from Front of House. Here are some tips. I'd love it if we could go through some of those, um, maybe take a deeper dive into a couple of them, because like me and I think like a lot of other people listening right now, you often work by yourself. You are the system designer, yes. system tech, A1, for better or for worse. And you also work on other shows where you are the sound designer and that's just your position or you're just the A1 or you're just the A2. But... Would you say that a majority of the shows that you work on, you are the solo operator of the audio system? The operator, yes. I've often got, you know, for the college shows, you usually get a couple work studies or, you know, some of the bigger shows. We do have crew, but I'm still I'm still the person who's got to make it happen. Okay. So, so I'm definitely one making the decisions. I can obviously tell that you've developed a lot of processes to efficiently get all this stuff done, uh, whether or not it's you by yourself or you with the team, and then you're sort of like making sure you're still the responsible party. So, um, yeah, could you go over some of the tips that you share in that article? And maybe I'll just stop you and, and ask you questions and we can um, talk about each one. I, I will say that I treat everything like I'm on tour, even when I'm not on tour. So for me, it's a consistency thing, doing the same things in the same order every time. Um, even if it's a different gig, uh, I'm, I'm the process guy. I'm all about process and I'm all about finding a justification for why we should do things in, in a certain order. And so what I found is that helps me to not forget things like, oh, I, I needed an extra extension cord for that wedge and I never ran it. Um, if you, if I follow my process that I've set up for myself, I won't forget those things. So if you do everything in the same order every time, then where does this, where do these tips come in the process? Where do you start doing, um, some of this optimization of the stage monitors? Optimization to me is is the thing that you do after everything else is working properly, right? So first thing I do is I physically put everything where it's got to be. So if I have to set up my mains, I set them up. If I got to set up my monitors, I set them up. And the second thing I do is I get powered everything. And the third thing I do is patch. So at that point, I should be able to go to the desk. And that's my first thing on my list here is I spray pink noise through everything. Um, they should all come up in the right spot. Otherwise, I screwed the patch up. You know what I mean? I also do outputs before I do inputs because I'm not going to waste an hour on why I don't have Tom Mike 2 coming up if half my PA is not working. And if you're, so not, I sort on, of, if you're not on stage, how do you know which output is working? Uh, if I have a person with me, I will have them walk around and give me a thumbs up in front of each wedge. If I don't, I will just turn all the monitors so they face out into the house um, and just go right down the line. Um, and if you're using all the same model of wedge, they should all sound the same when you spray them. Um, when I set them up, I check all the back panel settings, you know, the, the gains and the, there's a lot of, a lot of the active wedges have a main monitor switch and all that stuff. Um, I will, I will confess I don't use the monitor setting. I always put it on main cause it tends to be flat and then I'll deal with, you know, whatever coupling is created <laughs> later. Um, so th that's a really quick check. You know, it's sort of, instead of saying, uh, I need to measure each one of these wedges and make sure the response comes out. However, on the screen. If they all match, that tells me the same information only much quicker. So I go on the line and spray them. And if they all sound the same, great. If they don't, then something's messed up and we're going to go fix that. So that's my first thing is literally make sure everything's coming up in the right spot. Okay. And if something's messed up, what is a common problem? Um, like there's, we know when it's just not working, not making sound, but what, what would be the next most common thing that's, that's messed up? The line mic switch will be set okay. wrong so on a lot of active wedges. And yeah, and but here's the thing. The, the line mic switch can be on, but then the gain can be down. So it might not sound crazy loud to you. And if you're using point pink noise, you won't hear that you're overloading it. Hmm. Um, so the, other, the next thing I'll do is play a track. And I think that's in my article. Yeah. So the, the, the next thing is the track. And you will hear that with the track. So the thing with testing your system with any signal is there's no one signal that's going to tell you everything you need to know. You know, and if you think you've got a blown driver or loose hardware or something like that, a sign sweep's really good. You'll hear the rattles. You'll hear the, you'll hear the blown drivers. You won't hear it with with tracks necessarily. So, so sort of, you know, and this is a general thing. We'll get into the system tech thing, but in general, before you do any test, before you take any measurement, you should have an idea of what you're trying to learn and what you expect to be the result. If you don't have that going in you're going to miss something in your test odds are, you know what I mean? So I always try to say before I hit capture and smart, what did I, what do I expect this trace to look like? You know, I have a mental expectation and it's either going to meet that or it's not. But anyway, so, <laughs> well, let, so yeah, let me uh, ask you about that now then, because this is the point in the process where I would expect you to 
start using Smart. You post a lot about using Smart and different tests that you're doing and things that you're learning. Um, you have these great articles. In this particular article, you don't mention using Smart. So is that not something you commonly do um, with your stage monitors, or did you just not mention it in this article? I, I generally won't. Modern wedges are pretty good, especially the active ones with their own DSP. They tend to be really good. It's it's gonna the tone the tone's gonna shift like a seesaw depending on where it's located on stage. So if it sounds good to me and it just has a little too much highs, I'll just roll the highs off. And I, I've got an actual screenshot in my article of the uh, the EQ curve that I used on, on my Midas desk to literally just roll the highs back. I'm going for speed at this point, and so you know if it if it takes me ten seconds with an EQ to get it to sound good. Um, you're doing these, you know, it's a high pass, low pass and a very, very broad filter generally. Now you get some goofy wedges that are older, then if it's something nasty that I need three filters on, I'll, I'll definitely get the rig out. But for me, you know, if I can get it to sound reasonable within 15 seconds of listening to a track, I'm just going to do that. Nice. And I'm going to go okay. down the line. Sure. And the other thing I'll mention is I have a Q wedge. I always have a Q wedge at front of house tied into my monitor bus. And that's really important. And it's really easy to do. And a lot of people don't bother with it. And I will, after doing it, I'll never not bother with it again. You you adjust their mix. If you don't have a keyword, you're literally guessing at what's coming out of that. You're guessing. Um, and you're relying on the musician. And they may be in a situation where it doesn't sound good to them, but they don't know why. Um, I'll tell you a funny sp- experience that I had while working with the Philharmonic Orchestra in Slovakia doing outdoor concerts. I worked with a guy from, oh, I think he's from Acme in New York City. Anyway, that's not important. The important thing is that (laughs) he was trying to teach me how to do monitors for opera singers, uh, which is kind of a weird thing to do. And he tried to, I don't know, this is just his technique that I thought was really interesting. I've never seen anyone else do this, but he would try to get me to not use the cue wedge. And he would say, hey, you're not that far from them. I was on the side of the stage. Just listen from here. Learn to mix the monitors from here and so you can hear what they're hearing, and that's going to make you a lot better than trying to do it with your cue wedge. And I don't really know if that makes sense, but that seemed to work for him, and, and I tried it for a while, and it was it was actually kind of fun, and I felt like I was then more kind of connected with, with the people on stage. I mean, that's a lot of monitoring is understanding what the musician's hearing. That's where it goes back to being a musician. So if you're rehearsing with a band, go stand where they're standing and hear what they're hearing. And then if you have to do in-ears, just make their in-ears sound like that because that's what they're used to, you know? But uh, a lot of these venues, the one I mix most regularly, I'm 90 feet away up in the back in a room with two seconds of reverb. So that's just not going to work for me. <laughs> um, and you don't have any so. wireless control, right? You can All you can do is be there in front of the desk. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mix on, I own an X32 and a Pro 1 and the venue has an LS9. And all of those, if you work hard enough, you can get some sort of tablet thing going. I don't find it to be that beneficial. I'm definitely in a minority there because I argue with people about this. It just doesn't, it doesn't really speed me up all that much, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not part of the way I work, which is fine. Um, but the reason I'm not super concerned about getting these wedgie keys locked in, I just want to get them really close. Because if I have a Q wedge, I'm going to hear if there's something and I'm going to deal with it because now I can hear it. And it's no different than, you know, if you're if you're mixing in a system and it has a little too much 2K, if you're the one who's mixing, you can EQ that out because you're mixing. You know, the, the mix position is, as Bob McCarthy says, is self-calibrating. Um, so does that mean so, that you're actually starting with the Q wedge and you're EQing that and then you, you just copy that EQ to all the other Q wedges and then see if they kind of sound the same from the stage as your Q wedge? I'll go the other way. I'll get the ones on stage. Um, and generally what you find is without, what I find at least is, is with the exception of the high pass filter, which I will roll up differently on different wedges, depending on what's coming through them, especially in reverberant rooms. If unless there's a bass or a kick or something in there, I'm going to roll it up pretty, pretty good. But generally if they're all the same model of wedge and they're all placed on the stage, generally the EQs should match unless the wedge is broken. <laughs> um, and if that tends to be the case, then yes, I'll copy that to my key wedge. And then I'm, I'm reasonably close to hearing what they're hearing. That way I can, I can deal with, with it as it comes down the desk. And that's, that's much quicker than getting out the rig. And in most cases, I don't have to get out the rig for that. So tell me about the high pass filter. Do you have a setting that you're going to um, all the time for every wedge, for every player? Are you thinking about what's coming out of there? What's your thought process? Depends on what's coming back from the room. That's a that's a ton of it. Um, you know, it's this room with two seconds of reverb and a ton of low frequency buildup. You don't need as much in the wedge, nor do you want as much in the wedge because you're just going to make it worse. They don't ask for sub. There's a single Omni 18 sub, you know, above the center of the stage. So they're not asking for 40 hertz in their wedges. Uh, they're just not. So yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll start, you know, between 90 and 100 
rolling off and I generally won't go much higher than that, but I will sometimes go lower if I've got a base. Even uh, something like, uh, uh, they have a really like nine and a half foot Steinway grand piano. And if you are in the unfortunate situation where somebody wants that in their wedge when they're playing the piano, um, <laughs> I might even do something like a low shelf in that case, because that's where that piano is going to take off. You know, it's going to be between 80 and 200. That piano is going to just, just fly. Um, so, so I will, I will do that, but generally, generally it's, it's a, you know, it's the same thing you do on a mic channel, really. Tell you a really great learning experience I had was working on a tiny outdoor show. I'll call it a party. It was so small, uh, someone's private party and they'd hired this, um, kind of ska band. I'll just never forget. It was just so <laughs> empowering because I always want to see how high I can get my, high pass filters without bothering someone, but I get nervous about it and like, Oh, I can't go above 80 or a hundred cause they're going to notice and I'm going to get in trouble. And this guy who worked with the band, the front of house sound engineer came over to me and he's like, Hey, roll off all those vocal wedges up to 400 Hertz. And I was like, what? Sweet. <laughs> and that just like opened up my world for, in terms of like how high, what I can get away with. And so now I try to get away with basically as high as possible. In this case, the, the performers were standing basically right next to the sound yeah. system. And so that was a lot of reason for, for the, why that worked, but I'll never forget that. Well, yeah, it's, it's kind of like this nice little gig. I mean, think about, think about being behind a PA. It's no different than a balcony fill. We're getting a lot of low frequency energy already on stage, you know, and so we just need to add what's missing. And wedges are for intonation or for clarity. They want to hear, if their vocal is super clear in the wedge, they're not going to bother you they're going to be happy. Um, so it's all about that vocal clarity to me, you know, um, jazz musicians are much more sensitive than rock musicians though. I have found rock musicians. They, I, I think I said something like this in the article, uh, rock, rock, hip hop, uh, rappers, they want as loud of a wedge as you could possibly get. And you can really aggressively ring that out and get, you know, four filters in there and get 10 DB more gain out of that thing. Just have them screaming. And that's what they want. Um, Jazz musicians, I've noticed if you put in a 2 dB cut here, they'll go, uh, no, rather than having it ring, they'll just say, we'll just turn it down. Um, because they are so much more trained to balance themselves and, and balance, you know, produce the tone at the source. Jazz is literally, literally just a strict reinforcement thing in, in a lot of contexts. And so, so I've also found that you really have to be sensitive to who's going to be listening to the wedge and what sort of music they're playing, what instrument they're playing. That, that all sort of plays into my decision on, you know, what am I going to do to this wedge EQ? Okay. But I will say that those are separate things. Um, and I think this is, I'm sure you'll ask me about that in the article too, but you know, the, the, the wedge tuning EQ that, you know, it's sort of like the system EQ in the rack. This is what needs to be on the wedge to make it sound correct. You know, that is in a loudspeaker processor, DSP, or it's in a matrix send on my board, and I don't touch that. And if the artist wants a tonal change to the wedge, or the mix needs a tonal change, or I'm ringing something out, that's on the bus EQ or an insert EQ. You don't want to start crossing those because then you can get into all kinds of nasty problems. Walk me through your process for ringing out the monitors because you. <clears throat> You talk a little bit about how important this is in the article, but um, you don't really say what you're doing step by step. That would probably make the article too long, but I, I feel like now is a good opportunity. Um, maybe you could take me step by step through how you ring out a stage monitor. So dirty secret is I don't have to do it that often. If you get a good wedge and it has a reasonably linear tuning on it, I find that I don't have a ton of problems, um, unless it's a really super high SPL situation. If that's the case, you know, you, I, I will, if I can do it with two people, I'll stand there with a mic open in front of the wedge and I'll, I'll just holler out frequency, you know, give me a, you know, 3 dB at, at 420 and, and have somebody put it in. Or if I do it myself, I can do it from front of house. I will literally turn the game up <laughs> from the board until it starts to ring and then I'll cut it. I hate graphic cues. I don't, I don't use them unless I don't have a better choice. I feel that the filters are very wide. Feedback's generally a very narrow thing, and so I, I don't want to take. You know, you're talking about a third of an octave. That's that's, you know, you're going from a C to to an F almost on a piano. That's that's a wide chunk of energy you're taking out, and I find it to be very audible. Um, and so why why put a big chunk in there if you don't need to? So I will generally use a very narrow parametric if I can, um, and I'll just put it in where it needs to go. Um, and if you're if you're close, you can kind of sweep it one way or the other, and you'll kind of hear it tighten up. Um, you can also do the old trick where you do a little boost and you, and you sweep it until it really takes mm. off. You got to be careful with that one in monitors though, because 
it'll go quick because you're so close. <laughs> how um, how are you identifying these frequencies? Pure stubborn training over a long period of time. Oh, really? Um, so this is just and, ear training. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, you know, the, the RTA or something, you know, smart is, is always helpful there, uh, particularly when you're in a situation where you're far from the wedge and you can't really hear it that well. However, I never want to have to rely on that tool because there are a lot of situations when you can't do that. Anything outside, you're done. You know what I mean? If there's any wind at all, that reference mic becomes useless. So, yeah, so I, I, it's it's to me, it's just the old school ear training. And there's, there's feedback trainer apps and websites that are great, and they just play sine wave, and you go, I think it's 630, and, <laughs> and it tells you if you're right or not. And anybody can do this, and you start with getting it, it, it. And it's not as hard as it sounds, because if you can get within an octave, You've narrowed all the possible choices on your graphic down to three, which means that, you know, if you're guessing, you'll be, it'll be the first or second fader you grab in most circumstances. I submit that's close enough and it just gets better with time. So I definitely would encourage people to spend some time doing that because it makes you a lot faster and it makes you less reliant on tools. Um, Yeah, there's actually a free one that I've used online. And what I'll mention about my experience with learning it, I, I wrote an article about this where I tried training with it along with Sound Gym, every day for a month. The training part of it that I didn't understand until I started was that you can start with a very small number of frequencies and really 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz is really far to your ears. So if you pick six frequencies equally spaced throughout that range, you can really quickly memorize those six frequencies. And then... When you feel comfortable with that, then you move on to 10 or 12, uh, and then you just kind of keep going. You keep adding one. And so although I think people listening now who have never tried this may think that this is impossible and like, oh, that's only for people who have perfect pitch. No, you can learn pitch memory just like anything else. And just like anything else, you lose that skill if you don't practice it. But you can practice pitch memory and uh, you can kind of step your way into it, you know, little by little. Right. And, you know, I have two other tips that I can add. Number one is I think we all have this ability to some degree. Um, Everyone's got a car that has a base and a treble. And most people can tell which one of those should be turned down if the music doesn't sound right. Um, And so it's just that only it's just more finely sliced. Um, You know, if you had a three band EQ in your car, most people could say, "Okay, do I want a basement or treble? Which one's too much? It's just that it's just that only, you know, the the resolution is increased. Um, there is a great front house engineer named Tony Huerta. He he's a front house engineer for Take Six, the acapella band. They're fantastic. They come out with six wireless mics, and they're incredible. They've got like eleven Grammy nominations. I had the the privilege of being their system tech for a one off, and this guy was just incredible. Oh, cool. And he taught me to sing the feedback frequency <laughs> to yourself. <laughs> and then what? And he would. And because that helps him memorize it because oh. you're now using a second sense to internalize oh, that data. So that's he good. Would, he I would never match tried it, that. And then he would go like, he would go like, eh, okay, I think that's one six. And he would, his accuracy went way up once he started singing it back to himself. Um, Man, next time I try. Okay. So I looked it up. I looked up, I wrote this article and I looked up audio frequency trainer is the name of the app. So next time I try mm-hmm. it and I listen to it, I'm going to try singing it. You should. And also that's a music school thing is I had a teach. I didn't take voice lessons, thankfully, but I had a, a teacher who, you know, taught me to play instruments and said, if you can't sing that melody line, you're not going to be able to play it well on your instrument. And so even though you're not a singer, you're playing a piano or a guitar or whatever, you should still be able to sing that line. And that, and that really does help your brain process it. So I, I would say, you know, even if you're kind of humming crazily to yourself when you're ringing monitors out, um, you know, and, and it's just like anything else. The more you do it, the faster you get. You know, there's no magic trick here. Yeah, I, I think we probably already killed this topic, but you're just reminding me because <laughs> I went through that first year of music school as well, where there was just like all these things that I thought were impossible. And I really thought right. I wasn't going to be able to learn really just through small steps and lots of repetition and practice, it's amazing what you can train your ear to do. And that's that's anything. You know, my mechanic can tell me exactly what's wrong with my engine by listening to it. It's no different. Um, it, it, we, when we watch from the outside someone who's been doing something for decades, you know, we're just like, wow, that's, that's incredible. But, you know, it's sort of like you don't notice yourself getting taller. It's sort of the same <laughs> thing. You're not going to notice that you're getting better at that because you're you. You know what I mean? But when you see it from the outside, you go, oh, that's phenomenal. But, but you, you actually will get better at this every time you do it, even if you don't notice that you're doing that. So the other thing that I think is really important about 
um, identifying feedback frequencies and why it's so much more efficient, your method of learning to do this by ear than it is to use any kind of measurement is because that measurement only really works when the feedback frequency is louder than everything else. It has to look like a peak in the whatever graph you're looking at, or you're just looking at a bunch of peaks like you're always looking at. And it happens to me so often that um, I need to deal with something after the show's already started. And so now I'm in the show and there's not an opportunity for me. Hold on, everyone. Let me just make this thing feedback so I can look at my analyze. No, I have to be able to sort of hear it and usually guess and then go and try it and like, okay, yeah, that's correct. And or, or it's not. Right. Let me take that out. If you don't know how to do that, that is a painful process where sometimes you just sit through an entire show, you know, not knowing what to do. And people don't want to hear feedback. They don't they want don't. to hear it. Uh, you know, <laughs> That's like so, what every so. <laughs> terrible sound system in a Hollywood movie is, right? Like if there's a sound system, right, right. it has to ring back. It has to feedback. Like that's probably the fastest way to indicate to somebody that you don't know what you're doing, I would say. It, and that's the trope. And whether or not it's true, I don't know. And it, like you said, if you're ringing something out, you know exactly what you're doing. But but the problem, the inherent problem with, with analyzers and with particularly feedback suppressors um, is that they don't work until there's feedback. Um, they're, they're reactive. And so before you have feedback, you have a ring. And if you can hear the ring and deal with it, that's good. If you can hear the, the slight roundness of like literally the, the Q resonance forming in the wedge before it even becomes a ring, just sounds a little fatter. Um, if you can hear that, even better. You can. The, the idea with being a monitor engineer is I want to fix that problem before anyone knew, knows there was a problem. You know what I mean? That's 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 why they hire a person and not a feedback suppressor. So so we want to we want to be out in front of that. We want to hear it before anybody else does. And that's that's just the same thing you're talking about. It's just training. Yeah. Um, I'll say one more thing about ear training and ringing out monitors, which is that it failed for me so many times that I just kind of stopped mm -hmm. doing it. And so now I have a different process where I'll check for the frequencies that are going to feed back and then I'll just make note of them. I won't actually do anything about them until sound check starts and there seems like there's actually going to be a problem. Now, if you don't have a sound check, that may be a little bit different scenario. And it depends on, you know, what's the situation? Is it a room of like VIP corporate CEOs or whatever? Or is it, you know, kind of a fun outdoor party and, you know, you can get away with a little bit of ringing at the beginning of the show. But what I want to say about that is that so many times it would change for me. So I would go to a lot of the hard work of doing the ringing out of the monitors. And then we get into sound check and it's all changed. I'm like, did I just waste all my time? And so then I kind of stopped doing it because I was like, this is not helping me anyway. And then later on developed this process now where I just go through the work of identifying a few of the first things that are going to feed back and then just sort of write it down or make a note of it somehow. That's an important, really important point, because I think a lot of people don't realize that element that feedback is is literally a feedback loop. That's why it's called that. And so if you move a mic, that changes. Right, and it could if be an inch, or it could be just, the right, person puts right, a hat right. on, for Christ's sake. Right. Yeah. Musical <laughs> theater, right? So... So to me, you know, hearing the wedge, if the wedge has way too much 400 in it out of the box, you can guess that's going to be a problem. So there's stuff that, you know, if the wedge isn't isn't flat, quote unquote, you can go like, yep, that's louder than everything else. I can expect a problem there. And I'm going to get rid of that. That's why I listen to my track, you know, and I, I deal with that. But beyond that, and that's why I said I don't, I don't really ring them out that much. It's so dependent on what's happening on stage that you don't want to put 19 filters in. And they get into the show and you realize those aren't your problem frequencies. What are you going to do? You're not going to take them out during the show. That's scary. You know what I mean? So so rather than get into that situation, yeah, I, I get the wedge to behave. And that solves 90% of my problems up front in my experience. And then if I have a problem during the show, I just drop a filter on it and you move on. But I think if you've done everything else right up to that point, you shouldn't have to put 19 filters in your wedge. We also have to point out that um, both of us have been doing sound for a little while. I empathize with a lot of the fear around it. And so I can understand why, especially when you're first starting out or you're in a venue for the first time or you're working with a new speaker for the first time, you would have maybe a little bit more fear or trepidation be like, I really don't want to look. <laughs> is this going to feed back? Like, is this going to be a problem later? And so then you might spend a little bit more time on that um, and you might feel a little bit less confident. So I empathize with that and and um, realize that, you know, you and I are kind of speaking from years of um, having things fall apart already and sort of knowing when we should be concerned and when we shouldn't. Right. And, and look, you're going to get feedback. If you want to work on audio, you're going to get feedback. Uh, deal with that. You need to come to terms with that. If you're the person who's too scared to ever get feedback on a gig, 
got bad news for you. You know what I mean? So <laughs> you should probably so move to it's video. It's gonna happen. Just just embrace that and move on. Uh, but I will also say that you know you can kind of develop a spidey sense, like you said. I know when this is gonna happen, but guess what? The other there's another part of the equation here. It's the mic. So I can look at a stage and tell you which wedges are gonna have problem based on where the mics are placed. We ignore stuff like the the polar pattern of the mic. That's super important. Getting the wedge in the right spot. You know, so if I've got a if I've got a beta fifty eight, you know how many degrees off axis is the null on that mic? Most people don't know that. I have a protractor in my work box, so I can put that wedge exactly where it needs to be to maximize that null. And you're, you're talking 10 dB difference. That's oh, a cool. huge so difference. Tell, tell me about that. So do you put like the protractor on the mic capsule and then you have like a laser? Exactly. No, I just eyeball it. I literally line it up, you know, and I see where, okay, this mic's 120 degrees. And so my high frequency driver should be there for the wedge. And guess what? The artist is probably going to move that. And if they angle the mic on the stand, that's going to change. But you want to get close. You want to not pay no attention to it. You want to pay attention to it. Buy yourself every dB you can get. So we've spent so much time talking about let's EQ this wedge. Well, if you put the mic in the right spot or use the right mic to begin with, you know, if they want two wedges, don't give them a bait. Don't give them a 58. Give them a beta 58. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, and that that is that is being proactive and that will solve you problems before you even have problems. So I, I think in a way, putting filters on your wedge is the last step in the process and it's a band-aid because you're trying to fix a problem that's been created. Maybe it's up to you, maybe it's not. Sometimes they go, this is my mic, this is where my monitor goes, and that's what it's going to be, especially on a one-off. I can't go say, no, you can't put your wedge there. That's how they have, they want it. But let's pay as much attention as we can to everything along this process. And, you know, what I found is, to my surprise, <laughs> if you do that well, by the time you get to the point where you have to put filters on stuff, you don't have to do that much. So... You know, we spend so much time talking about EQing, but I think it's it's really one part of a bigger picture that we should be focusing on. I made these things called the Aiming Triangles Business Card. Yeah, 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 yeah. And in the updated design, I actually got printed on there the angle for supercardioid and hypercardioid so that I can then like put it on the microphone and then put a laser right. and aim that. Um, so that's pretty cool. And I like having that and I like knowing that. But doing the research for this design, I discovered that there's not really a standard and that mics are all over the place. There is not. So I actually found true. two common microphones. I can't remember the names of right now. There's two common microphones that one claims to be supercardioid and one claims to be hypercardioid. And they're both exactly the same mm-hmm. in, in terms of the degree of where right. the null point is. So right. you still and, have and to I, know your microphone. Yeah. <laughs> you do, and you have to use your ears. And, and I also think that uh, it, what a lot of people don't realize is it's a spectrum. You start with Omni over here, and you have figure eight on the other side, and all the other polar patterns come out of that somewhere on that spectrum. So it's not like, you know, it's not like putting things in drawers. It's not quantized. And in fact, can be infinitely variable if you want to get into the, the mic design aspect of it. So so that's exactly true. And every mic's going to be a little bit different. But all I'm saying is let's try to get close. You know what I mean? If you've got regular old cardioid 50, you understand, you got your monitor off to the side, you know, 40 degrees off to the side, you can expect that's going to cause you a problem. So get it close. Let's get it as close as we can. And, and you know, if I can reduce my, my problems by 40 dB, I'm going to do that. One thing that's helped me is when I see an artist wants to move something out of what I consider to be um, optimum for rejection, is I'll say to them, hey, totally fine with you moving this, just letting you know that this is the optimum position for maximum game before feedback. And so we can try it in whatever position you want. And then if you end up needing more volume than I can give you, we'll probably have to move it back. And most people seem to be okay with that. Right, and that's exactly... The same thing that I was saying before, which is, you know, I, I you know, I'm generally going to trust in the artist to know what's best for their show. It's their show. It's not my show. And so, yeah, I'm going to give them that information and let them know that, hey, we're here to help you. My job is to make you sound as good as I can. And here's here's what I think you should know about that and do with that information, whatever you think is best. So it's, you know, it's the same thing. We I think uh, that will give you a lot more respect and more cooperation. If you do have a problem later on, they're more likely to say, hey, how can we work together to fix this instead of just getting mad at you because there's feedback? Um, I have an idea that I want to share with you that I've been trying recently and I still don't think I have really perfected, but I think it has a lot of potential. Okay. Um, so, and you'll, 
you only be able to do this when you have enough time, basically at the end of your system optimization procedures, and you say, okay, I've did, I've done basically all of the processes that are going to help the majority of the people in the audience. Let me also now not only measure my stage monitors, but then measure my stage monitors with my vocal microphone as my measurement microphone. So then I'm basically just measuring everything coming off of the back and reflecting off of things back into the microphone. Um, what that has allowed me to do is in um, some environments, like maybe I'm measuring a, mi a podium microphone, is that then I'm measuring just all of the PA speakers, the front of house speakers that are getting back into the podium microphone, and then I can see like where is that low frequency buildup mm. going to be at, and I can sort of preview what might a, an EQ across my podium look like or what might an EQ across my vocal bus look like to help reduce some of this low frequency buildup. The other thing it helps me do is when I'm doing stage monitors in a vocal mic, I've noticed that some of the peak frequencies that will come out of that measurement are the same peak frequencies that are going to be the first to feedback. So I'll sure. take that oh, measurement, yeah. Yeah. I'll look at the magnitude, and I'll say like, oh, peak here, here, and then I'll do a test to see which frequency is going to ring back. Oh, it's the same frequencies. So this is all kind of new for me. Maybe you've already done this. Maybe everyone else has been doing this for a long time, but this is sort of new and exciting for me. So I wanted to share that with you and see if you've, you've tried any of it. I think I've been doing it without realizing that I've been doing exactly that. Okay. <laughs> what I mean by that is, because it's, 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 you know, it does follow that, hey, whatever the mic is hearing the loudest is going to take off soonest. You know, that's, that's a, a bit of a distillation, but it's, it's, it's pretty much true. And so... There's absolutely a value in that, and I think there's a training aspect of it, too, where after, over time you get to correlate what you're hearing with what the mic is hearing, and that's super valuable. I will generally, if it's a corporate thing, um, and it's a it's a high-stakes thing, and I, I, you know, I don't have a lot of time, I will tie in smart to my monitor, to my monitor cue bus on mm -hmm. the desk. So whatever I solo, I see the spectrum of. Um, and so that's, the, uh, you know, it's the same thing as, as running a, a spectrograph, for example, on, on a podium mic. Um, you know, I, you can see the ringing because it takes longer to decay. So it's, it's basically a roundabout way of doing the same thing. Um, but by doing it through the console Cubus, I, I can jump around to whatever I'm having trouble with. I did a thing recently. I had three labs, all omnis, all sitting right in the center of the stage, uh, you know, two, re two seconds of reverb. And of course, they're, they're way down here and they're mumbling, you know. Uh, and they fired the sound guy last year because there was feedback. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, you <laughs> so, knew about this. Interesting. Right, right. right. It, so I was like the second shot at it. And, you know, but but these they're how these things happen. They go, well, you got to mix from the booth. And I'm like, well, you told me that it had to sound perfect. And for that to happen, I need to be in the same room as the show. Um, and they didn't want to have wireless paddles because they didn't want to see him. And so I go, well, I see why this guy got in trouble last right. year because if you go, <laughs> if you appease him. all of the, <laughs> right, right. So the problem is you got to know when to stand your ground and say, look, I understand what you're trying to do, but you know, you called me because you had a problem and doing all the same things you did last year will mean that you'll have that problem again. You called me because you had a failure and you want to do something different here. I'm telling you how to fix it. So you know, you gotta, you gotta really work with people. And that's where it goes back to being polite from moment one when you walk in. You know, if you're friendly and approachable, you can have that conversation. But so, you know, you gotta stand your ground on a couple things. But, you know, I still had, you know, a spectrograph running and, and whoever was speaking, I could hit solo on the desk and see that. And so it's again, it's about, you know, heading off those problems before the audience knows there is one. Any other specific things from that article that you wanted to share that we didn't get to? Yeah, double patching is big, big, big. Oh, okay. We should definitely talk sure. about that. Yeah, so um, on a digital console, you could send two inputs to two different channels, right? But on an analog console, you could use a Y cable, like that kind of thing? Yeah, okay. I carry a couple Y cables. And generally, it's your, your money channel, a couple, two, or, two or three vocal channels max. It's not it's not crazy. But uh, that came from it, it, a situation I did uh, probably eight years ago. It was an up-and-coming female pop artist. She had a really, really loud band on stage, and she sang extremely quietly. Ooh. And I knew it was a problem going in, and she wouldn't sound check. I got myself in the trouble because all the stuff you have to do, her manager's like, she wants more in her wedge, she wants more in her match. Well, now, <laughs> now it's, butch it's butchered out front. Just totally butchered. And I needed a ton of compression because she, you know, her singing was sort of all over the place. And so those two things aren't compatible. 
And so after that show, I said, well, I'm always going to double patch my money channel. Um, and so I can do whatever I need to do so she can have it how she needs to have it in the wedge and I can aggressively ring it out or whatever. And you don't have any compression on it. And I can do something completely different in the house just to make it sound right coming out of the PA. And like, you know, why not? It takes 10 seconds and don't, don't make more trouble for yourself than you need to. Uh, because, you know, what I need to do to sit this vocal comfortably in a mix and what I need to do to get this vocal really loud in a wedge are not the same thing. So it doesn't make sense to try to force those to match. Sure. So yeah, I, I will just double patch my lead vocal channel. You know, you can set it up ahead of time with uh, a graphic EQ across just that if you want to. You can go from there and you don't have to, you know, I, I, I was sweating during that one. So, so I, I, uh, I always double patch and sometimes you don't need it, but I, I will always do it. And it's a habit that I have now. Um, I got a bunch of artists I mix that are on in-ears and a band, a band I work with regularly, they're on in-ears and I, I have the lead vocal double patched, even though it's ears and it's never going to feed back just because, you know, what she needs to cut through her ears mix and for everybody else is, again, maybe not what I'm doing in, in the room. So I, I found that, it, you know, like you said, a Y cable, just buy a Y cable for four bucks on Amazon or digital. It's basically free to do that and yep. and you have it if you need it. Yeah, and and I'll say that for a long time I thought the level of complexity it required was not worth the results. And then I just finally tried it once and I was like, oh, it's not that bad. And so now when I have the opportunity and the resources, I'll always double patch everything. So, you know, you said you have an X32, you have something like an X32, you have 16 inputs for a band, I'll just duplicate all of them. And immediately seems like you're doubling the amount of work but I have found that those inputs going to the wedges require less work and they need a little bit small different changes. And I just really appreciate the opportunity to continue to say yes to the artist or the client instead of needing to say, no, I'm sorry, you know, I am sending the same thing to the front of house as I am to you. Right, exactly. And, you know, if we got the DSP, why not, you know? Uh, it's not like you're at, you're not adding more open open inputs. That's usually why we're nervous about adding more inputs because we've got more open mics now. You're not doing that. So I think we're programmed to have a little bit of like, uh, I don't know about that. Like that's that's a healthier reaction to adding a bunch more inputs to your show, <laughs> doubling them. But in case of a double patch, you know, it, obviously you want to be you know familiar with your desk enough to not confuse yourself. But yeah, yeah if you can do it. Um, it definitely pays dividends, absolutely. So, Michael, you've already shared a lot of good stories with us. There was the girl vomiting on the fire <laughs> microphones. There was this uh, other artist that you had to... That's where you learned about the double patching because it was so painful. Tell me about maybe the biggest or most painful mistake you've made on the job and how you recovered. Oh, jeez. I don't know. what I've made a lot of mistakes, Nathan. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. We should stop recording. We'll come back tomorrow. <laughs> I have a really cool story. It's not about a mistake that I made, but it's probably my favorite story from my experience in audio of all time. Um, so I'd like to share that. Okay, let's hear it. Um, and I'll think about I'll think about my biggest screw ups as we go on. I was doing a very small outdoor festival up in a cornfield in upstate New York. Sure, and, as one does. Know, no cell service, no power, just, you know, just nothing up there. The company I was with was supplying all the stuff. And, you know, it's one of those graduation tent, you know, stage roofs and 18 inch deck and just it's small, you know, a couple hundred people showed up. It's all local bands throughout the day. And there's one headliner at night that that's well enough known to be touring with their own crew and their own gear and everything. And um, so the headliner's not on until like 11 p.m., but the, they roll their, their guys roll up about one in the truck and we get our stage guys to start dumping their gear. And their front of house guy comes over to me and we had talked on the phone. We had touch bases. He goes, hey, man, you know, shakes my hand and we're chatting a little bit. And uh, he goes, uh, what's going on with that uh, with that sub array? And this is the this is the idiot check because I was running cardioid subs, uh, you know, uh, uh, like an end fire gradient configuration yeah. front to back. And he hadn't seen that. And if you don't know what that is, it might go like, well, this guy doesn't know how to set it up It does subs. look funny. That yeah. would, right. That would normally be a very concerning thing. And so I just kind of sketched it on a pad real quick. And he said, oh, that's pretty neat. And he kind of went and he walked around the stage and he came back. And he said, wow, can't really hear much. That's really cool. I said, yeah. <laughs> and then I said, and so there, you know, there's a band on stage. Uh, one of the local bands is playing. And I said, I think I'm over compressing my bass. He goes, yeah, you are. And he, <laughs> he said it so quickly <laughs> that he had clearly already arrived at that conclusion on his own and just been polite enough to not say anything to me. And he said, here, throw my headphones on. So I put his headphones on and he gets, starts getting into the EQ and the compression. He shows me how to fix it. I said, oh, that's really cool. Um, and then I said, you know, and I was, you know, I'm fledgling system tech at this point. And I said, hey, uh, I tune this PA. How does it sound? And he's, he takes out his little Zoom H4N recorder and he 
plays a board mix for a, a very well-known pop artist that he had just got done touring with. Okay. Um, he said, well, it sounds like it should. You know, he said, my board mix coming out of your system sounds like the mix. Oh, he said, cool. so that's good. Yeah. And, he, and I'm like, oh, cool. Because I, I don't know what I'm doing at this point. I'm guessing, you know. And he said, but the more important thing is that you asked me, you know, that you were open to that. Um, what I really like about that is that we both showed up and we both had a situation that we were like, I don't really know what I'm doing in this situation. And there was an opportunity for both of us to learn and we both learned. And had we gotten into that, you know, territorial pissing match that's all too common with a lot of sound people, that would have been a very different day. But we both showed up and we both had a great time and we both left with more knowledge. And, and that was so key to me and that's really what i love about audio is that people are so willing to share and so willing to say yeah i'd love to show you what i'm doing here and i'd love to you know i'll give you all my tricks that i spent 30 years gathering i'll give them all away to you in 10 minutes um i that's so amazing so humbling to me and that's really why i continue to love doing audio and so that day was sort of like the epitome of that we're just kind of two nerds coming together and leaving with more knowledge than we came (laughs) in with and it was so cool to me and so to me that's i try to i try to aspire towards that all the time, you know. Um, so I encourage, and we, you and I talked about this the other day on the phone. I, I encourage people that have an interest to go and ask questions and go be that annoying kid that I was mm-hmm. and say, "Hey, explain that to me. I want to learn." Because um, that's that's the only reason I learned. If people hadn't been willing to answer my questions, I wouldn't be doing this right now. So that's so important. Before we go, please tell people where is the best place to follow your work. My little independent audio website is called Precision Audio Services, and I'm at precisionaudioservices.com. And if you go to that website, you will find a little link that says Between the Lines, which is my system optimization blog. And so that's where I'm posting all of my nerdy rambling. So that's probably the best way to catch up with me. Okay, important follow-up question. I don't go on LinkedIn a lot, but when I do, there's usually some entertaining post from you. And But it's never from you, is it? It's from a little bird in the photo. Uh, who's that little bird? <laughs> that is that is my little man, Joey. Joey. He's a Quaker parrot. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's uh, seven years old. Yes, he's seven years he old. Lives he's with you. been removed. He does, but he's been removed from the premises for the uh, sake of this interview. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> his screech really cuts through for some reason. He, he gets jealous when other he people are talking. And, yeah. So that's my little man. Okay, yeah, he's my, uh, my, uh, he's my uh, PR manager. Michael, thank you so much for joining me on Sound Design Live. Thank you for having me. Sound Design. The interview's not over. I forgot to ask Michael some of the questions that people sent me from Facebook. So I'm going to do that now. Manuel Elias Costa sent me this question. What does he know about Automix and machine learning? And Michael says, machine learning is reactive and descriptive. If you read the AES journal, you see this is all the rage right now. It can spot trends. For example, all these smart EQ plugins now saying, we looked at properties of 500 recordings of acoustic guitars, so we think what we're hearing now is an acoustic guitar, so we're going to add this EQ and bring it closer to the average of the others. I expect to see... I expect to see this more deeply integrated into consoles and plugins in the future, maybe not in terms of making artistic decisions for the operator, but definitely in terms of the console being able to identify what types of signal they're passing. Auto mixers, similarly, can work well in corporate roundtable talking head type applications, but it'll likely never replace the line-by-line technique in theater, for example, which done properly can add so much to the actor's artistic performance. In both cases, the computer can only replicate what it's learned from humans, and although it can be functional, it will never be able to add the human artistic element that is such an important part of music, so it's never going to be a complete replacement. Andre asks, what does he think of the way the music industry is developing production-wise, and is audio quality still a thing? How are decisions being made for specking a certain sound system? Why is point source so much neglected when it can be so many times better than the usual line array type of systems? And Michael says, audio quality is in higher demand than ever. We're starting to move away from compressed formats and towards mostly nonsensical HD tracks, but it shows that people are more concerned about it. In the live world in particular, I think the standards are higher than ever for good audio quality. People are really expecting an audio quality live experience that's so far ahead of what passed for concert quality, uh, concert audio in the 80s. 
I like to say that lighting or staging or costumes can be bad, and that's annoying, but bad sound is a legitimate reason to ask for a refund. The truth about designing a sound system is that the budget is a big determining factor in what you can and can't do. So it often turns into how can we make the best use of the resources we have? Point source is still a great solution in a lot of applications. The limitations are range ratio and vertical pattern control. If you aim your on axe at the last seat in the venue, you're wasting half your pattern on the back wall and ceiling. Sometimes that's fine, sometimes that's a big problem. And if your venue has rear seats eight times farther than the front seat, a single point source box isn't going to work too well if the goal is uniformity. A line array allows us to shape the coverage, give everyone the same level, and keep the energy off the back wall where it doesn't belong. But as you say, a line array is definitely not always the right solution, and it does end up getting used in applications for which a point source box is a better fit. Dave Gammon says, does he see sound being more immersive in the future, uh, less about right and left, but more about a total experience and encapsulating the audience? And Michael says, I think the manufacturers of these systems would like to say yes, because why sell two arrays when they can sell seven? But even putting aside for a minute the laws of physics that prevent stereo localization from operating consistently for all listeners spread across a wide room, I'm not convinced that's the way forward. Most shows I see these days still sound lousy, and our gear is amazing these days, so that's not the issue either. The way I see it is that we need to get more people in the field better educated about how to properly use the tools we have, the most common issues are just plain old bad mixes and improperly deployed or tuned PA, spe- uh, PA systems. Some of the best known shows I've ever heard were mixed in mono. That also gives us a much better shot at creating a situation in which more of the audience is hearing the same thing. So while the spatial stuff is certainly cool and fun and is interesting and valuable as a technology, I don't think it's the most productive way forward for improving large-scale sound reinforcement. And I'll just add a note that I feel very similarly to Michael. And when I first uh, saw posts about um, the Elacoustic system where they were promoting this idea, I thought, wow, we, we can barely deploy basic mono systems properly. Why are people jumping all over multi-channel systems? Um, and then at the same time, I saw that the new Bon Iver tour is using that Elacoustic system and it looks really cool and I want to hear it. So... Um, So it looks like, uh, you know, we're going both directions at once. Garrick Quinton asks, with the new advancements in line source technology, where do old line arrays go to die? (laughs) What's the next game changer in line array technology that we don't yet know about? And Michael says, a line array cabinet is a pretty simple idea from a design standpoint. You can buy them on Amazon. Conceptually, the stuff nowadays is largely the same as what L-Acoustics introduced to the world in 1992. We get incrementally lighter, more powerful, lower distortion, and more efficient, but aside from the notable exception of the beam-forming beam-steering technology that drives rigs like Martin MLA and EAW Adaptive, everything still works the same way it always has. So again, I don't think it's going to be a product-based paradigm shift that moves us forward as much as a people-based widening and deepening of our knowledge that allows us to get better results from our current excellent gear. And then Lou Coley, how do you stay relevant to opposite ends of the market? The novice starting at a bar gig to working professionally to industry veteran. And Michael says, Looking at the audio industry publications as a whole, I definitely see a disconnect between what's often in the covers of the trade magazines, million dollar PA systems and huge arenas, and the average person working in the field reading the magazines. Statistically, they're in House of Worship or corporate audio, but also small clubs, venues, theaters, weekend warriors, etc. Keith Clark from LSI PSW Editor-in-Chief and I have a lot of conversations about how to make sure we're presenting material that is interesting and useful to folks working in many different areas of live audio. It's something I feel strongly about, and we've been publishing more and more content that deals with small venue installs, corporate audio work, theatrical mixing, and so forth. In my own writing, I've been that sound system optimization is not just for the big rigs. 
Our cover story a few months ago was an article showing all the same optimization techniques and principles apply to small rooms and basic systems such as the tiny bar optimized for the article. In general though, we know that every single word in every issue won't be of interest to every person in the field. But we work to make sure that we have a great variety of content addressing a large range of topics so that no matter who you are and what sort of work you do in audio, you can pick up the magazine and find something interesting and useful. Sound design. All right, I want to thank Bionic for the music of today's episode. If you want to find more of his music, you can do that at bionicmusic.com. That's B-I-O-N-I-K music.com. Sound Design Live is supported by Learn Stage Lighting, Scott, Pedro, Ryan, Bob, Martin, Rody Free Radio, Joel, Ellis, Jim, Sinqui, Nicholas, Nicholas, Kuba, Chris, DC Sound Op, and Dave. You can start supporting Sound Design Live today for as little as $1 over at patreon.com slash sound design live. <laughs>